own personal emotional habits of isolation have now become part of the culture itself. People are afraid of looking at and being with each other. They're afraid of and paradoxically long for honest and ordinary conversation. There's an incredible amount of awkwardness and odds are in the coming generations, it's going to get worse. Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I am James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle, the Buddhist Review. You just heard Koshin Paley Ellison, our guest this episode, reading an excerpt from his recent book, Wholehearted, Slow Down, Help Out, Wake Up. Koshin is a Zen teacher and co-founder of the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care, a nonprofit that offers training programs in clinical chaplaincy, meditation, and spiritual counseling. With his new book, Koshin shows how the 16 Zen precepts can apply to our everyday lives. He does this by exploring the causes of suffering and isolation in his own early life and explaining how his Zen practice helped him through it. The way Koshin sees it, we often get lost in our mental narratives, which prevent us from connecting with the world around us. But there is a way out. We can learn to have compassionate relationships with ourselves and others. Koshin Paley Ellison, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here with you, James. I'd love to start by talking about your new book, and congratulations on that. So tell me why it's called Wholehearted. Well, originally the title was going to be Waking Up from Zombieland, and some other people thought that there would be a more friendly approach would be <laughs> to call it Wholehearted. And actually, I feel like that they're quite similar. So what do you mean by Zombieland? Zombieland is the capacity that we all have to look outside ourselves for life. So zombies originally were un, were children without parents. So they were like looking for to get inside somebody's head. So one of the important things about parenting is, turns out, having the imagination and for a child to know that you're thinking about them. Mm-hmm. And so zombies became like these little kids who were trying to get inside people's heads. And now we think of them as like trying to eat people's brains. (laughs) So what is the alternative here? Well, learning how to, like we're doing right now, just sitting across the table from someone and actually really looking at them and noticing the color of their eyes, noticing what their face is, and to actually feel what that feels like, which in my experience tends to feel quite good and to feel like, wow, I haven't seen you in a while, James. Well, a couple of days. A couple of days. Yeah. Yeah, So I wonder then why is it so difficult to sit across from someone and really look at them? Well, we don't like being uncomfortable. And I think that there's this addiction to and aversion, it's like from the time of the Buddha where you're talking about aversion and how difficult it is when we feel something uncomfortable and then we think that it's wrong or not good or unacceptable. So we'll move away from it. And so sometimes just looking at someone, sometimes people say, well, why are you staring at me? As opposed <laughs> to, because we're not used to even just softly gazing at someone and appreciating them. 
You know, I was just talking to you before we started here about three people, three young women I saw sitting at a table in a restaurant. And at first they were chatting, but within minutes, each of them was on her phone. So all three of them at the same time were looking at their phones and texting and so forth uh, without being with each other. What do you think is going on there? Of course, you can't know. Uh, but typically, what, what, what does that indicate to you? Well, it's amazing. I don't know, right? And at the same time, Chodo and I were at a restaurant last night. It was a beautiful night. We're sitting outside in this really sweet little place on the Upper West Side. And everyone around us was on their phones. Like yeah. Every single table, people were like, and I love that sound, like, like, you know, people's faces tend to go pretty flat while they're looking at their phones. So I don't know what's happening. It's just that people forget the art of conversation. And it's also like one of the things that one of the top five things that new freshmen are afraid of going into college is talking to people. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned Chodo. I just want to point out that's your husband. Uh, how does this work in relationships then? We, we likewise do the same thing. I mean, sometimes you get home and each of you get on your devices or do different things and the evening can pass and you haven't even glanced at each other. Mm-hmm. So how does this work uh, bringing it into more intimate relationships? Well, for us, we kind of monitor each other and encourage each other. So, for example, just I was coming from another place and on my way here, I stopped over just to like look at him. And so I just popped into our center and just to look at his face. To me, that's such a treasure because I know that there'll only be a certain amount of times where I'll actually be able to look at his face. And with devices, we say like, okay, is now the time? And actually, so we try to make it as conscious as possible. So to think about like, okay, we both do have some work to do. Do we feel connected enough so that we can, you know, go on these things? And, you know, the plague of modern, (laughs) the modern plague is email and catching up in this endless barrage of people. Yeah, people feel so lonely nowadays. We hear it again and again, and isolation is such an easy thing to do. It's as if we've been given an opportunity uh, to lapse into this sort of seamless isolation. You know, all of a sudden you pull out your device and you're gone. Uh, So it makes the challenge of being together even more difficult. And and you talk about that some in your book. But talking about your book, um, it's about the precepts, the 16 precepts but applying them in our everyday lives. The book has a very accessible and practical bent. So talk about how you might use the precepts, for instance, in this uh, situation, in in our tendency to isolate and, and disappear from each other. Well, the precept that I love so much is the first one, which is Buddha, taking refuge in Buddha. And I translate it in the book as being awake and or awakening. And so to me, it's a wonderful question to myself before I think or say or do something. Am I awake? Am I actually taking refuge right now in my own awakeness? Before I pull something out of my gym bag, lately I now keep my phone zipped in my gym bag Mm -hmm. just so that it can be away. And I think there's this habit of just like turning it over, turning it over, turning it over. And so to me, using the precepts in very kind of simple and 
rich ways of really paying attention is incredible. And for example, this morning I was at the gym and, you know, it's very easy to get caught in your exercise even. So there you are doing your exercise and people are often in their own worlds. People are all plugged in even there. And there's a circle of us who all go very early in the morning. And we have a habit of actually checking in with each other now. Oh, really? Yeah. And so I'm like, hey, how are you doing? And so like we actually all know each other's names and a bit about our, each other's lives. So I think finding the way of creating community wherever you are so that for me, that's also one of the precepts of Sangha, of community and connection. So finding the everyday communities that we have, it doesn't mean that you have to be best friends with them, but it's wonderful to care about them and wonder actually how they are. And it's more than, hey, how are you? How are you? How are you? And with that as the response, as it often is, but actually like, oh, how are you? And what, what did you do over the weekend? And what's going on with you? And so now I'm thinking about one of them, actually, I wrote about him in the book, and I thought he was really pretentious for a long time. I had all these ideas about him. And then one day his arm was in a sling and it turned out that his mother had suddenly died. And like the day before, he got a compression fracture in his collarbone. And he was just standing at the locker weeping. And just learning to say, and this is this person that I was full of ideas about and was sure was like not a nice person. <laughs> and it just turned out that he was just so heartbroken and sad, and actually, and physically, in a lot of pain. It's so nice to be wrong, isn't it? <laughs> I have a, a quote here from the book. Would you mind reading it? It's this first one right here. Sure. Our own personal emotional habits of isolation have now become part of the culture itself. People are afraid of looking at and being with each other. They're afraid of and paradoxically long for honest and ordinary conversation. There's an incredible amount of awkwardness and odds are in the coming generations, it's going to get worse. One of the reasons I wanted you to read that is contrary to the book as a whole, it's not so optimistic, but the book itself is pretty optimistic. And while it's coming uh, from your Zen practice and teaching, this is a good example of why and how it's for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, you write it in a very accessible way. You don't have to be a Zen student, for instance, to read it and benefit from it. So who did you have in mind then when you wrote it? Everybody, right? No. I had uh, actually my niece in mind who at the time was 17 and who, you know, is in many ways was a very typical 17-year-old and just kind of figuring herself out. And then I actually had my mother in mind who is, you know, progressive, caring person, but, you know, and spiritually curious mm -hmm. and interested, but not, you know, she's certainly not a Buddhist or, and neither of them are. So I wanted actually, it was my way of thinking about how to make these teachings accessible to them so that they could serve. And actually the third person was Mary, who's an amazing woman who lives in a nursing home. 
and who listens to my talks and is been a long-term practitioner. And so I also wanted to give her a gift. That's great. You know, I wanted to ask you about the precepts themselves. It occurs to me that many of our listeners may not be familiar with the precepts. Not all of our listeners are Buddhist. Uh, why don't you say something about the precepts? What are they and what are they not? Because typically when we hear it in the West, we think in terms of commandments, say, mm-hmm. or rules uh, that we need to adhere to. Uh, and these are more uh, have more to do with situational ethics, I would say. But what are the precepts and what are they not? So the precepts, as I understand them, are 16 vows or ways of making a commitment to living with these as your guides. So to me, like I was talking about earlier, about just looking through the lens of awakening, for example, you know, how do I view my behavior right now? Am I really being awake or am I just being a complete ass, you know? And, and if I am, how do I return and come back? So it's like coming back to our breath. And so for me, yeah, so I think many people think of them as like the Judeo-Christian Abrahamic traditions of like thou shall not. And, and I think in some Buddhist schools, it is a little bit more literal. But in the Zen school, and one of the reasons that always appealed to me, it's very challenging because you have to really think about Am I attuned ethically and morally? Mm -hmm. And it's a very alive moment by moment experience. Like, am I treating others with the respect and dignity, including myself? Do these actions honor life? You know, do my thoughts honor life? Or am I, what am I doing? You know? Right. As our mutual friend Sharon Salzberg often says, it's in the coming back uh, that the growth happens. And I was thinking about that because, you know, if we're not paying attention, we can be so easily borne off, say, by anger. So anger is a big one. And I, for, it's one thing to know the precepts. It's another to practice them. Yes. And, you know, you talk about anger. Like for me, it's if somebody is next to me chewing very loudly. If I'm not paying attention, I'll get angry pretty quickly and really angry. It makes you want to chew loudly right now. Uh, don't do that because I'm... <laughs> But uh, you talk about people who have metal water bottles and they unscrew (laughs) them. And if you're not paying attention to what's going on, you might find yourself very, very angry. So talk about those moments of awareness and how they can actually help us not to get so easily lost or when we do get lost, how we come back. Yeah. I mean, to me, as you're saying, you know, coming back is everything. And the willingness to come back with a healthy embarrassment, I think, is so important. You know, I think that it's very easy for many of us to shame ourselves for, oh, well, I'm not a good person. And we put all these value judgments when we notice that we've done something. So to me, one of the really important practices is just like having a healthy embarrassment and just saying, like, yep, I did that. And so, for example, with anger, you know, it's, such a powerful and amazing emotion and so important you think about the anger of so much like of civil rights activists of human rights activists and people doing just really important work the anger is being used as a skillful means as a way of cutting through delusion so i think it can be helpful so that kind of aggression sometimes is useful 
and other times it's really not. So I'm thinking about, you know, giving a Dharma talk and someone sitting in the front row with their water bottle. Like, I don't know why. I, I almost brought one of those water <laughs> bottles. I thought that would be too much. So it'd just be like you eating an apple right now. I could pull out the water bottle. Where is my apple? I don't know. I don't think they brought food. <laughs> and plus, I didn't want to hear chewing. But I think that it's just about how do you just notice what is actually happening? Like, wow, it's really just a water bottle. And it's just some person sitting there thirsty and kind of de-escalating. It's just amazing. Like what sets us off for different people is, you know, kind of neutral in a way. It's like for you, it's chewing. For me, it's a water bottle. Or sometimes with people slurp on their spoon. Yeah, that's a bad one. Mm -hmm. But I think it's just important just to kind of take a breath begin again and just realize like what is actually happening it's like not a big deal and how we're exploding out of like both of them are so innocuous like eating and drinking you know how someone's doing that and we could set off a war <laughs> like, <it's so laughs> yeah crazy. i could easily go to war over those you know as a teacher i was just thinking you said to come back to awareness with a healthy sense of embarrassment and also assume a, a sense of humor too uh, not get, uh, not be so arrogant that we think, well, why shouldn't we really be flawed? But as a teacher, you deal with a lot of projection on the part of students. And it would be easy to not want to want them to see where your glitches are, you know. So it's like, how, how do you kind of maintain that? Uh, on the one hand, your stature as a teacher. On the other hand, allowing yourself to be seen as somebody who is imperfect, Mm -hmm. I mean, and I ask this also because, you know, a lot of teachers have fallen prey to this notion of themselves as this perfect teacher or this pressure that they feel they need to be perfect. Um, so here you are talking about, well, breaking the precepts and coming back with a sense of humor and a healthy sense of embarrassment. Mm -hmm. How do you stay balanced in that way? What do you do? Well, it's a really important question. So first of all, there are certain levels of breaking the precepts that are really important not to do. And I think that should just, let, let's just put that on the table. And I talk about that in the book about like that teachers should not have sex with their students or abuse them financially or different things like that. And then there's these other levels of it. For me, what's been always really important is to share and teach from my own vulnerability. And what I mean by that is sharing my struggle. So I'm not interested in presenting myself as a teacher with a capital T and who already knows and has arrived. Because, you know, one of the things that I love about my teacher, Dorothy Diane Friedman, she's such a pisser and she is so dedicated and has been practicing for such a long time. And she's so clear that you never arrive. And for me, to really practice not arriving is to share the struggle and to be willing to have a sense of humor about things and to, yeah, be willing just to talk about our everyday struggles. You know, I know another teacher that I so appreciate is he often talks about his trouble sleeping or, you know, people have different levels of struggle. And I think to share our humanness is the medicine for that kind of inflation and projection. And I think it also gives people more permission to be more human themselves 
So I think if as teachers, if we can be people, then we can actually, we're teaching people how to be people <laughs> as opposed to teaching people how to have some idea of perfection on top of themselves, which doesn't really make sense. Yeah. I mean, it's so common. It's so common Very for people. Popular. Right. And I, I would just imagine it's sometimes doubly difficult for a teacher who, who, upon whom we place such high expectations. Mm-hmm. We can be so unforgiving, mm-hmm. you know. You're listening to Tricycle's editor and publisher, James Shaheen, in conversation with Koshin Paley Ellison, author of Wholehearted, Slow Down, Help Out, Wake Up. Are you interested in bringing Buddhist wisdom into your daily life or deepening your meditation practice? Tricycle's online courses offer the opportunity to engage with timeless Buddhist teachings in an accessible format. They're easy to use and feature expert teachers like Sharon Salzberg, Stephen Batchelor, Mathieu Ricard, and more. Sign up today at learn.tricycle.org. Podcast listeners can receive a special $25 discount off any of our online courses when they enroll using the code TRIPOD25. Sign up today at learn.tricycle.org. You know, I thought it was sort of interesting, you know, we talk about being with each other and how difficult that can be. And certainly being with people who are at the end of their lives, that can be especially challenging. I just went through that recently myself. So many things come up. And of course, I had plenty of help from people like you and others. But a lot of what you write about comes out of the Zen Center for Contemplative Care, the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. So I wanted you first, before we get to the whole issue of caregiving, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Zen care and how that came about. Well, essentially, it came about from being the both, you know, Chodo, who was volunteering for a long time in hospice, and then myself, I was the primary care, one of the primary care people for my grandma, Mimi. And when we met, we met through Zen practice and the desire to serve. And we were sitting in Father Demo Square having espresso in the West Village of New York. And on our first date, we were talking about ordaining, we were talking about death and caring for people. And we realized like, wow, we're in love, you know? (laughs) So you came together in a discussion of death, right? Yeah. It's very Buddhist. I mean, it was amazing. And Isan Dorsey's legacy, too, which was so inspiring. We had both just finished reading. Why don't you say who Isan Dorsey was, just so? Isan Dorsey was, as far as I know, the first openly gay Buddhist teacher. And he also founded the first Buddhist hospice, as far as I know, probably around the same time as Zen Hospice. It was Maitri Hospice in San Francisco in the beginning of the AIDS pandemic. And really work to care for the people in his community. So it was such an amazing inspiration and was so dedicated to practice and care Mm -hmm. in one life. And so we were both so inspired by that. But we didn't really understand the form. And so it was actually my grandma who had the idea. And it was through her seeing how few people, even though they had really good intentions, didn't know how to pay attention to her, didn't know how to listen, just to look at her 
and to ask her real questions and wait for the response. And what she found is like our friends, as she would call them, like the Zen friends, and would come and she said, they're so amazing at listening. And they can act like ordinary people with me. And so she had this idea, actually, while she was in hospice, for us to start a nonprofit organization to train people, as she said, in the Zen, and, <laughs> and also how to care for people. So you use the word ordinary, and in the book you say something very interesting. You say care is very ordinary, and you're talking about it also in, in terms of taking care of the dying, mm -hmm. people whose deaths are imminent. What do you mean by that? The sort of care you do is ordinary. Well, for me, I guess going back to this moment with you and I at this table in this room and just saying like to actually feel care towards you and wondering about the losses that you've just had and to be able just to sit in myself and feel loving and caring towards you to me feels ordinary and sweet. And to me, that's what makes it special. And what I've found is that we think that caring for someone is different than that. And so being with dying people or being with very sick people, to me, what is most needed is your willingness just to go in and sit down and be like, what's needed here? And sometimes it's teaching a child how to bathe his father, which we did recently and after his father had died. And sometimes it's putting on the Rolling Stones and dancing around the dead body. And sometimes it looks a million different ways. And to me, the more I can just be grounded in what's happening. So to me, it's like the basic instruction in Zen meditation is like really root down, be clear about your vow and widen out. And so really learning how to do that moment by moment. You know, you, you said something that I'm sure will probably sound jarring to a lot of people, put on the Rolling Stones and dance around the deceased's body. Um, it's rather unexpected. Do you want to say something more about that? Yeah, I think that it's just important to listen to what's needed. And if a family feels like this was his favorite song and the best way we could celebrate right now him and that he lived and died is to dance because he loved to dance to this song. And it was in the middle of winter and they would just open the windows and the curtains are blowing and everyone was dancing. It was so beautiful. And to see children and his wife dancing. I think it's just about giving up all of our ideas about what things are supposed to be. Even if, like for me, actually in that moment too, like I was a little jarred by it. But I think that's wonderful. You know, we all have our own response to these situations. During the AIDS epidemic, certainly there were a lot of people that I had become a caregiver for. I mean, those of us who were healthy spent a lot of time caring for others. And I remember at one point thinking, I don't know how to do this. Um, I just don't know how to do this. And someone close to me said, well, I didn't know how to have children until I just did. And so what she was really pointing to, and we later discussed, there's sort of an intuitive sense that we have about what to do. And we just have to let ourselves get to that place. 
And I remember thinking, how do I do this? And, and, uh, and I thought, well, I guess this has been going on for millennia, uh, just as women have been having children for millennia. We must know somewhere what to do. And the first idea that came to my head was get help, you know, get help. And in this particular case, my partner, I said, I called all of his friends mm -hmm. and everybody showed up. And all of a sudden, despite the mistakes and the awkward moments, and uh, there were surprisingly few regrets afterwards. So I think sometimes that's what you're getting to in the book. We do know if we listen. And the beautiful part is the extending out, right? Right. To, you know, reach out, widen, as, you know, Einstein said, you know, widen the circle of compassion. So include others. Right. When often the first impulse is to disappear, um, but it doesn't work. Mm -mm. So, you know, it's interesting. The most difficult thing for people often is to be with people who are dying. And yet that's what you choose to do often. How does it enrich your life? Because I know what it does for others. Um, I've seen it. But how does it enrich your life? Because I think it's really important for us to understand that it's something that helps us too, equally, and perhaps even more. Well, as I often like to say, that I spend actually a small amount of my time with people who actually know that they're dying. And the rest of the time I'm spending time with people who don't know that they're dying. What do you mean by that? They aren't accepting it or they're... Well, like you and me. I see. Very good. <laughs> Right. Because what I've learned from the dying and what I've learned from the living are very similar, that we really just have this one shot, as far as we know. I mean, every tradition has different reports back, but no consistent report. So for me, it really impacts how I enjoy life, actually. And so like in the morning, every morning, you know, even before I get out of bed, I spend time just like looking at Choda's face. And I just like, I'm amazed that I can do that. And then before I leave, you know, then I have the sit and then I have all these different things. And then before I leave the house, I just make sure I tell him exactly how I feel about him. Because I know actually one of the things I did learn, it was actually in emergency rooms, is that so much regret was expressed in emergency rooms about how people leave the house. It was so humbling that I would hear regret after regret. I can't believe I didn't tell her I loved her or what was I thinking? I was too busy. I was on my phone. I was this. I was that. So to me, like I've really learned how to really appreciate transitions. So leaving the house, going downstairs, noticing the sky, appreciating. I feel like actually my life feels filled with appreciation actually and i feel like that mostly like i used to be that weird smiling clown person but now i feel actually my smile feels really genuine now most of the time and i just feel like i really enjoy like walking down the street and i love being in the gym i love being you know getting to sit zaza and like i, I love my life i feel so grateful and it's because of all these people who have gone on before us who have taught and the message is always the same. You know, did you love well and did you get caught up in your bullshit? Right. You know, you know, for me, with, you know, you bring up some interesting points. One of them is that, you know, in my case, when a friend of mine who, who died this fe last February, 
when I found it really difficult and overwhelming, when I found his demands overwhelming or his criticism of how he was being cared for overwhelming, what got me through it sometimes is I'm not going to be able to see this person for much longer and everything would change in that moment. Or when my dog gets me up at five in the morning because he has to go out, he doesn't always get up that early, but when he does, I remind myself, I'm not going to be able to do this with this dog forever. Uh, it's very uh, poignant, it's very acute, but in our everyday lives, I'm not thinking that. As you point out, people generally, myself included, aren't often in touch with the fact that we are dying. I mean, that this will end. I mean, there's a built-in denial mechanism. How do we get the quality that you just described when we're not under duress, when we simply, it feels easy to take things for granted, like a walk? Yeah, it is so easy to take things for granted. You know, lately I've been really interested in looking at Hubble telescope pictures. <laughs> I'm kind of really into it and just really enjoying. And lately they've been posting lots of images of stars going st supernova and swallowing all the planets around them. <laughs> That's rather dramatic. It's amazing. Yeah. And what you can see is how beautiful it is. And like that's going to happen to our little star too. And like the Earth and Saturn and Jupiter, like. That you just slurped. <laughs> <laughs> and there we go. And so to me, and, it, and probably like those other ones will look very beautiful. And I feel that for me, just really appreciating like, wow, this is it. Mm -hmm. And. So far, in general, not all the time, but in general, like I feel coming back to that pretty often, like even walking down 17th Street and then up 6th Avenue and then seeing Chota, then on my way here, like just noticing a lot of things. Because I know that, you know, even friends of ours who have been killed in bike accidents recently and you just don't know. And I, I want to show up for as much of it as I really can. Yeah, you know, it wasn't until I fractured my knee that I understood how much I really and truly enjoy walking around mm -hmm. the city. Um, so, like, the practice, and, and back to your book again, applying these precepts in our everyday lives and being aware of, of impermanence, uh, these things uh, allow me not to have to fracture my knee to know how, how important it is or how much I enjoy walking. Right. It's a wonderful book. Um, isolation. We talked about isolation. And I'd like you to get a little personal here because you started out in life as what you refer to as a lone wolf. So talk a little bit about, you know, sort of the arc of your progress from being a lone wolf to being somebody who takes delight in opening out to the world. Tell me a little bit about where you grew up and what that was like for you. You describe yourself as an outsider. How did that come about? Well, I grew up in upstate New York in Syracuse. And grew up with the, the legacy of the Holocaust. And so most of my family, extended family, were all wiped out. And as is common and in many of those families, there's a lot of turmoil and abusive behavior in that family. And that wasn't any different in ours. And at a certain point, my parents had divorced and my mom and my stepfather, we moved to the foothills of the Adirondacks where there was, we were the first Jewish family to ever live there. And we were often surrounded by four wheelers at night and shooting at the house and, you know, 
calling us Jew. And even in the classroom, the teacher would pull me up from my seat by my hair and saying, where are your horns, Jew? And it was that kind of town. And there's many moments where I felt unsure about that if people at all were safe. And in an amazing way, as a you're a young person, I write about this in the book too, that having these experiences of feeling that people were dangerous, but the earth was not. And having these experiences of like lying on this moss rock in the midst of this forest and looking up at the night sky and feeling so held and expansive. So I think that those moments were incredibly helpful, you know, to have some kind of experience of connection. And, you know, there were teachers along the way, like when I was in ninth grade, there was a teacher named Mrs. Spillane, and I wasn't in her class, but the way she read poetry took my breath away. And so I used to get a hall pass and go and sit outside her classroom and listen to her. And I felt like, wow, I never knew there could be a person like that who could just be so moved and want to share what was so moving to them. So I think about there have been a lot of people in my life like that also. And, you know, I got pretty into spiritual practice early on. And when I was like 17, I was, you know, going on to all these different retreats with Sharon and Jack and Gaelic Rinpoche and all these people. And I was like, Gaelic Rinpoche used to call me like the little funny city kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I was on a bus and this woman was sitting next to me in this Greyhound bus. I remember she had a smiling plastic bag. Remember those smiley face plastic bags? Mm-hmm. Strange. Those plastic bags. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, she said, oh, so like, are you a Buddhist? And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm a Buddhist. And she's like, oh, really? Who's your teacher? And I'm like, oh, well, I studied with this person, that person. She's like, oh, you're a lone wolf. And I was like, yeah, I am a lone wolf. And she's like, wow. We know that the reality of lone wolves is that they're sick <laughs> and dangerous, actually. And I remember just thinking like, oh, shit. Because I had taken it as a kind of a badge of honor to be a lone wolf. Right. And not really belong anywhere. You talk about even your meditation practice became something that you placed between yourself and others. So anything could be used to build that wall. I was such a jerk for at least a good 10 years of like when I got really into Zen, I was like really one of those people, like a meditation evangelist. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) how did you finally come around to not being a a lone wolf? How did you kind of take that risk uh, to connect with others? I think that it was the summer of when I was 19 and I lived up in this little town called Agunquit, Maine. And I met these women these amazing women who were spiritual and open and I had never met anyone like them. And they were like a gang of them Mm -hmm. and they were writers and thinkers and artists and such cool, cool women. And they were all lived 
in this area right between these two towns called Freedom and Unity. <laughs> I mean, you can't make things up. And becoming friends with them that summer changed my life because I never knew that you could be so open with a group of people and that they had come from screwed up backgrounds too and difficult and they had their own challenges and everyone was just so open about it. And I never knew that you could do that. And it was like the beginning of realizing I could relax into myself. And actually that where I had come from is a place of connection. So it was kind of like actually experiencing how the first noble truth of suffering can be a place of deep connection when it's shared. We're running out of time here, but uh, you talk about connection and, and awareness. And I think those two things in many ways are what we can arrive at in practicing these precepts in a very everyday uh, way that even the small things like getting annoyed about somebody chewing or opening a metal water bottle are opportunities for us. Uh, to apply the precepts and to consider where we are in the moment. So you very beautifully just described both connection and awareness. So I do recommend Koshin Paley Ellison's book, Wholehearted. Thank you for being here with us today. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Anything you'd like to sign off with? I just always think of, you know, Naizumi Roshi's, you know, his famous teaching of just appreciate your life. I mean, I just feel like this is really it. And don't miss it. Well, that's great. I'll try not to. Thank you so much, Koshin. Thank you, James. You've been listening to Koshin Paley Ellison discuss his book, Wholehearted, Slow Down, Help Out, and Wake Up, here on Tricycle Talks. If you'd like to hear more episodes, visit us at tricycle.org slash podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Write us at feedback at tricycle.org or leave us a review on your podcast player. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruest at Argo Studios in New York City. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Thank you for listening.